Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the third part of the triennial reading. We're in the third year of the triennial reading. So we're reading the last third of Parshat Vayigash, of the, uh, the Parsha in which we have uh, Yosef revealing himself to his brothers uh, and then asking after his father and bringing his father and brothers down to Mitraim, down to Egypt. So we will be uh, starting with the triennial division. Um, given the electric, spirited nature of the conversation last week, I am willing to go off the triennial topic if we need to process a little about this part of the Joseph story, any other part of this week's Parsha, I'm I'm willing to go there. I know there's a lot of feeling in the room about Joseph and his situation. Um, so we and uh, you will take hopefully a Jewish journal with you when you go. Page 46. On page 46. <laughs> Just checking the page. Is a Torah commentary that I wrote for the Jewish journal. My first... We'll say a Shechianu, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Shechianu Vikimanu Vihigianu Azman Hazeh. And so it's not on this part of the parsha. So, um, but I'm actually, so I'm actually well versed now in in the other uh, section uh, of this narrative as well. All right, so let's look at forty six twenty eight. We'll start here. And if there's not enough we want to say about that, we can back up a little bit. Somebody want to read? Judah, he sent ahead of him to Joseph to show him the way to Goshen. So they came to the region of Goshen. Joseph harnessed his chariot and went up to meet his father Israel in Goshen. He presented himself to him and threw himself on his neck, weeping all the time. Israel said to Joseph, now that I've seen your face, for you're still alive, I can die at last. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I'm going to go up and tell Pharaoh. I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. In fact, they are breeders of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they own. Therefore, when Pharaoh sends for you and asks, what do you do? Say, your servants have been breeding livestock from youth onwards to now, both our households and our father's households, in order that you may live in the land in the region of Goshen, for Egyptians find shepherds abhorrent. Okay. Joseph. Wait, wait, let's stop, let's stop there. Um, so, Judah goes ahead, right, to Yosef, uh, and so everybody's coming down to Goshen. Goshen, uh, we know from the archaeological record, uh, is a place where when there was famine in Canaan, in southern Canaan, Goshen was a place that people would go in order to find work uh, and food. And then, because it was close enough that right then they could go back home, presumably, when the famine, the crisis in Canaan was over. Why might there be food in Goshen when there's not not in Canaan when they're so close together? (laughs) Sheldon gets the gold star today. Agriculture in Canaan is dependent on rain. All agriculture is dependent on water. Absolutely. That water comes in Canaan in the form of Rain and it must happen in its season. If the rain doesn't happen in its season, you have flash flooding that washes everything away. Right? Think you all live here. You've lived here. If you've lived here for any length of time, you all know what I'm talking about. If the land is really dry and then there's a downpour in the dry season, it takes topsoil and shrubbery and everything else with it as the wadis become raging rivers. Uh, and it's it does absolutely no good and tears up a lot of the um, actual soil that's used for uh, growing stuff in the right season. That's why when we open the prayer book and we come to the Amidah, right, we come to the Tefillah, 
we say either Morid HaGashem, right? We bless God who brings down the rain. Mashiv HaRuach, who makes the wind blow. Mashiv HaRuach, Marid Hagashan, thank you, um, and causes the rain to fall, or, right, we switch it when it's not supposed to rain where? In Israel. That part of the Amidah is not about rain for us. It's about rain in the land of Israel. And we switch it. We don't say Mashiv HaRuach or Marid HaGashem in the dry season, because you don't want it to rain then, right? We're not going to talk to the God who, who makes the wind blow and rain to fall then. Right? We'll call God something else, right? God who brings the dew. Because plants survive in the desert. If they, if they don't survive by rain, uh, if, in other words, if there isn't rain, the other way they have developed to survive is to capture dew. So they have either leaves, you know, that are out and then can, cl- you know, whatever it is, the technology of the plants that survive in the harsher, harsher desert regions of Israel survive because they can use dew before it dries up. Right, they they capture it before it dries up in the sun and goes away. So, so we know that people, when they were suffering in Canaan, often because uh, agriculture in Egypt is dependent, as Sheldon said, on the Nile. It's a whole different business, possibly not always, but but often it's a whole different business in Egypt. What's happening with their agriculture? All right, so so we get this. Narrative. So there are often people coming to Goshen in times of crisis um, to to work and to live. This is the case with uh, Joseph and his family. So Joseph ordered his his own chariot, right, and went to meet his father Israel. The rabbis have a lot to say about this. Where do you think the rabbis go with this? That Yosef goes to meet his father in the chariot. What, what what value do we take from this? Angel. Respect, respect for yeah, our parents. How is it respectful? He How went, is this demonstrating respect? Well, he went to meet him. Well, yeah, he, and he's a big wig. Usually it's the other way around for him. Right? So there's a couple of places the rabbis quote exactly this. Someone of high status going out and taking himself to meet someone of lower status is considered by the rabbis to be the way we're supposed to do things. That we're supposed to humble ourselves, particularly if we are important. If we are successful and powerful and important, it is even more important to the rabbis that we express humility. Right? So the other one, we'll see if you remember it when we get there this year. Um, The other one is Moshe. That there's trouble Right, and Moshe gets up and goes down. It's with uh, Datan and Aviram. We remember, right? Um, the insurrection, the rebellion. Moshe gets up and goes to them. And the rabbis have lots of midrash about even with Moshe's enemies, even with the troublemakers. Moshe, the leader, took it upon himself to go to them to start a conversation, uh, rather than like getting all cray cray. Didn't Abraham go out to meet the three? And Abraham goes out to meet the three strangers. He rushes out to meet them. So all over um, Torah, we see these these examples that the rabbis really lift up as being more than just he did it. It's that this is the value we're supposed to to live into. So he goes to meet his father, who we always want to pay attention to what he's called. Israel. Interesting. It's not Yaakov here, right? Interesting. When, you, when, do the, when did we start? He stopped. Start being called Israel. When did he start being called Israel? With the wrestling. Him. Who? Oh, yeah, okay, I got it. When, when Jacob wrestles right. with the whatever it is, okay, so um, we no longer say angel in this class, right? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> when, when he wrestles with whatever that is, um, he, uh, he has his name changed to Israel, the one who wrestles with El. I just thought it hadn't happened yet. No. I got ah, it. yeah, a few weeks ago. No. Or millennia. Or millennia. <laughs> yeah, same dip. En mukdamu mewachar b'torah. There's no early and late in Torah. We have a question. Carol? Why don't we say angel? Oh, just because we've made the story much more complicated in our years of study. Too. It's not just an angel. It's the ish. It's the angel. It's God. It's him. It's his dark side. It's his, 
Shadow. It's you know. I mean, we we've had many explanations in here. I thought we didn't say angel because it's a very Christian concept. Uh, it's not Malak. So we we do generally use angel for Malach, even though it's a terrible means terrible translation, right? Because messenger is way better, but we're stuck sort of with angel in terms of the semi. Not semi-divine. The, the the in between, right? Not not human, not divine. You know that kind of weird other place. Daniel. All Judah did was send ahead and tell Joseph they were on their way. Well, for the rabbis, just what do you mean, just? <laughs> That's all he did. Start with Judah, but it's really it's first. You know, all Judah did was send ahead for them, and then bring them together. He didn't have any other. Well, if we back up a few pages, which we won't do quite yet, um, it's Judah who really turns the whole thing. Judah turns everything, including, if you look at the Jewish journal, there's a wonderful Torah commentary. (laughs) Talks about, it's Judah who turns Joseph's heart, who makes this moment of reconciliation possible. Um, But uh, we're just getting this reference here, but... um, you know, we talked a lot last week about Judah, right? The, yeah. Ju- Judah rises to prominence here and needs to, because who comes from the tribe of Judah? David. David. Okay, good. Um, all right, so so he he meets his father, right? And <clears throat> he presented himself to his father again. This idea that he presented, he didn't wait for them to bring his father to present his father to the vizier of Egypt. He uh, presents himself to his father, embraces him, and according to the Hebrew, vayevk, uh, he wept on his neck. Ode. Interesting. What what other translations do you have for, for that? He wept on his neck what? Just weeping all the time. A good while? A good while. All the time. All the Yet time. More. Huh? Yet more. Yet more. Because he had already wept. A bunch. <laughs> right. Presumably that's a while ago. Right? That, that, that's a while ago. Now, he, this is, this is now the time where he's being, his father had to get there. Right? So this is two weeks later. Um, but, <clears throat> not to, not to discount the fact that we've seen Yosef weep a bunch. That is significant, I think. Um, we don't get emotion in Torah, right? We've talked about this a lot. We we don't get emotion. We don't get motivation, right? We don't get psychological states of being in the Torah. Torah's not interested. The fact that we see Yosef weep so many times is important in this the creation of this narrative. Because this is just not something we see. First of all, from men, right? Um, but second of all, to, he's very emotional. We understand why. I'm not saying it's odd. I'm saying we don't get any emotion back here. <laughs> he grieves. Um, and, and often that's where we see weeping, right? Is, is with mourning. Death. So that Yosef's doing it so much not about death is fascinating. Where else did we see an incident of people falling on each other's necks and weeping? Two brothers that we crossed with Esau and Yaakov. So this is, right, this is the way Torah, for those of us who know these stories, it's a way that Torah brings it around again, right? This is one of the beautiful literary devices in Torah. We've seen this coming together and falling on the neck business before with Yaakov. He does it with Esau, his brother, when he goes back, and now he does it with his long-lost son, Yosef. Amy, I hate to do this to you. I really do. I apologize. It's sad. (laughs) Isn't it horrible? Like, yeah, he reconciles with Asav after how many years of being apart, never sees his mother again. 
we don't really get him and Aesop doing anything together until it's time to bury their father. And now, yes, he's he's reunited with Yosef. They fall on each other's necks. There's this beautiful scene of crying, and we're about to hear him say, "Now I can die." That's- right? Like so, it's think about how long he's been separated from Yosef. He's lost his wife. How long ago? You know, and I just can't. Help, and we're going to hear him say it for himself. But I can't. I can't help but see the irony in the fact that all of these reunions and falling on necks that Yaakov has happened, really, their closure, and there's still this huge, gaping, sad emptiness in the middle of that closure. Does, does that make sense? It, I don't think, am I, am I correct that it doesn't say here what Jacob's reaction was? You said they both fell on each other's necks. Does, does well, the Hebrew say that? Because the English basically uh, says that... Well, Jacob doesn't push him off. Doesn't push him off, <laughs> but like, we don't know what's going on with Jacob. We don't. Maybe he doesn't... We can assume... Or not. He's moved because of what he says next. We can assume he's deeply moved. He may not be the one crying, right? But these reunions, I, I just find it a very... Very poignant. Maybe that's the word. It's a very poignant um, set of reunions that Yaakov goes through. None of them really being, oh, good, you're not dead. Two years after he got gone, right? It's twenty something years later. Amy. Well, it's not enough to just have the person there. Yeah. Yeah. So Amy saying that. It's not just having the person there, it's not having had, you know, the time with them. Well said that we we change in the intervening time, especially when it's a long time. And what we yearn for, that we really do want to have reunion about, we do want to come together over, we can't ever really get. Because we're different, the other person's different, and or we're different enough to understand that the person can't and never could give us what we need. We can't go back, right? And and fix it. We have to live into, of course, what's now? I'm not saying it's, it's depressing. I'm saying it, I'm, I'm saying that there's a, there's a poignancy to what Torah does in this narrative that I find compelling. Um, all right. So, and it's for, it's a, for a good while, Yosef's weeping. I mean, you, you have to have this image of, I mean, I mean, you all know my story and, you know, just, having met my birth family there there's this for you'll say there has to be some level of just coming apart right like who he's been what he's put together you know for who he is and what his identity is he's an egyptian he's a successful egyptian he's an important person right and now he confronts right his infancy his childhood his teenage years and everything that should have happened with his father after that and 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 touches it he grabs he grabs it in a way doesn't he you know he throws his arms around it and sobs you have to you have to kind of imagine i think that yosef comes apart a little bit here and not a and not necessarily in a bad way like he it's all just kind of coming out now for yosef it's as if he was living with how old he's become. I know, you know, my parents hard to see them age. 
you want to be so you know to see him again as an old guy that can make you weep right there. And um, and imagine the shock of that, yeah. right? It's not like they were skyping right. all this time, you know, for him to like see a gradual right that the just the shock, shock of how old and possibly frail um, Jacob is, because because he says you know. Jacob thinks he's close to the end. Um, so, you know, it's not like he's hale and hearty. He's not like Reuben and Blanche, and right? He, he's not, like, raring to go, no matter how old he is. He's, he's, he's thinking he's at the end. Right? Later, doesn't Jacob say that his years have been very difficult? Yeah, we're going to go there. Um, so Joseph <clears throat> said to his brothers <clears throat> and to his father's household, I will go up and tell the news to Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They have always been breeders of livestock and they have brought with them their flocks and herds and all that is theirs. So that when Pharaoh summons you and asks what's your <laughs> occupation, you will answer, right? We're breeders of livestock. We always have been. Our ancestors were big. And that then Pharaoh will let you stay in the land of Goshen for all shepherds are abhorrent to Egyptians. So Yosef is coaching the brothers and his father on what to say when summoned by Pharaoh to some commentators say he's planting the seed the same way Miriam does with the daughter of Pharaoh when she says, shall I get a wet nurse for you? Right. That that's a suggestion that the daughter of Pharaoh is going to keep the baby. She plants that idea right by asking a question. So similarly here. Possibly planting the seed in Pharaoh's mind. Oh, Goshen would be a good place for them um, to hang out. So, um, and that's because he didn't want them near the Pharaoh's palace, right? Um, we don't get a why. So they're going to be they're going to be in the region of Goshen, right? Um, we're not we're not told why. Well, why do you think? Why do I think? Um, because that's the place it, that people went, right? They're semi-nomadic pastoralists, and so that they need they need land where they can raise flocks. So it's true they are shepherds. It's not a lot, right? But but presumably, so yeah, right, right. So part of the part of the suspicion is like what? Like you got you're coaching someone on the. That's like someone saying, okay, when they ask you what you do for a living, tell them you're a rabbi. Yeah. It's like, cause otherwise I would tell them I'm a car salesman. Like, like what, so what, what's going on? And so one theory is that, um, I just forgot what I was going to say. Why they may live in, uh, the, is the point here that he's wanting to settle them in Goshen? Yes. So he has to get Pharaoh's authorization okay. to settle them in Goshen. Oh, I know what I was going to say, Daniel. Um, Yaakov is hugely wealthy. He's massively, he's a sheikh. So a sheikh comes down with all this stuff. The suspicion is he ain't just raising sheep. Right? And so I think Yosef wants to not have Pharaoh or anybody get too worried or suspicious about, right, this hugely wealthy man coming down into Egypt. That he's not there to monkey around in Pharaoh's backyard, right? He's not there to monkey with anything. He's truly a shepherd. Jacob is truly wealthy. Yes. Yaakov is wealthy. Yeah. And so... um you, he's coming down with his hummers, right? And so that could look a bit suspicious, right, to the government. Like, hmm, right? Pharaoh is an absolute ruler. And so he doesn't want somebody that he doesn't know setting up a racket in his backyard. And if you're that wealthy, it ain't just from sheep. There's a word here translated as abhorrent. Into the English, mm-hmm. is that Tovah? It is. Is that it is? Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about the sense of that because we do meet that later. So Tovah is right. Tovah we've seen before. We've seen this uh, in the context of things that are taboo. So it is a ritual 
It's a ritual um, abhorrence, it, right? It is hateful to Egyptians. The same way swine, right, eating that is toeva to the Israelites. So we, this is our concept. Toeva is a concept that is ours. The Egyptians have it too. It's no wonder, right? The, all the cultures of the ancient Near East would have had um, similar rituals and similar understandings of what is toeva and what isn't. Uh, given Joseph's status, it's, it's also possible that it's in Joseph's self-interest to have that away from them. Okay, t- say more. Well, Joseph is the easiest nice and and we've talked a little bit about Pharaoh being Joseph's Father, right? We talked a little bit about what it, you know. He's got a new father figure, and in some ways, Pharaoh may not exactly want birth dad, baby daddy on the scene, monkeying with his protege. You know, the person who's become his son. Look at that way. Joseph is politically very astute about the dynamics that could go on. Watch, it gets it gets more astute. You know, it's important. The same way that we all need <clears throat> fertilizer. We all really want fertilizer. We need it. We'd like to buy it with miracle Grow. But we and we can have very, very wealthy people who make fertilizer, who we really don't want them living next to us. So we can have somebody, it's abhorrent to have the factory in our backyard. So maybe raising sheep and raising animals, you can be wealthy, but it's not considered a, it's kind of a nasty profession, although it's necessary, and that's why it'd be important. So we need it on the outskirts of town. We need it in Fresno. We don't need it in Malibu or That that is definitely part of part of it. Um, Bert was asking me to talk to Toeva as a concept, and usually it's ritual abhorrence. It, it is taboo, so not something that has an explanation. Right, it, it is. In English is really extreme, and, and it's got and it's got implica- abhorrent has implications that are not there in the Hebrew. But I think in this, not, not just nasty, but forbidden, like off limits. You know, like um, and so th- there is that sense of toeva. But I think here it is much closer to what you're saying that it's just kind of disgusting to the Egyptians. It's necessary and a function of society, but it's gross and it needs to be in the valley. Yes. Well, you know, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's Maybe because um, everybody knew that being a shepherd was abhorrent to the Egyptians. He was warning his family, don't lie about this. You know, even though you think they don't want to hear that you're a shepherd, tell them the truth. Interesting, right? So do not set up any for any reason for Pharaoh to doubt you. I've told them you're a shepherd, right? Y'all need to come clean. You may not be proud of it, you know, but... But you need to you need to be honest. Do not mess this up for me, <laughs> like with Pharaoh. The, the Green Book has a note that says that first of all, this abhorrence doesn't necessarily refer to all shepherds, but probably, possibly non-Egyptian shepherds, because the it says the statement is not supported by Egyptian records. Moreover, even in the biblical account, Pharaoh Pharaoh has his own herds. So, um, so, so it's abomination or foreign, similarly to the way the Egyptians don't like eating with Israelites or anybody who's not Egyptian. Um, so, so, the, so, they'll uh, put the, so they'll put the non-Egyptian shepherds off in a separate place, even though you know Egyptians won't necessarily think of shep- shepherding by Egyptians. As I'm not sure I buy it. Um, all respect to the Green Book. Um, <laughs> Because, because the distinction between Egyptian, non-Egyptian professionals doesn't seem as meaningful. Not eating with, you know, someone else. It was, you know, that is toeva in its, in its way, right? That we won't sit down and eat with foreigners because it's, because they're, they carry that toeva-ness with them. I mean, we don't want to sit with that. Um, understandably, right? Um, uh, here it's like it seems I think it's actually I think it's actually probably 
city versus country a little bit. You know, they're at Pharaoh's Palace. They're they're in downtown, right? They're in Beverly Hills, right? That um, so in, in that sense, it's it's like the the low life, you know the. And so Pharaoh has those. He has people who tend his flocks, but he doesn't want to have them hanging around either. Right. He, he wouldn't sit with them either, but they're necessary, but... Well, maybe Joseph doesn't want his, his father and his family to be assimilated the way he was. Maybe he Interesting. Sheldon. That's two today for Sheldon. Um, Interesting. So... He knows what it is to have left those ways, those traditions, right? Presumably he's speaking Egyptian, right? You know, the, he's complete. His wife is Egyptian. His children are Egyptian. He has children. He has children. To this, to this issue of wanting to be a little careful about the old family, maybe not, you know, what, what, what's the situation with his kids and how he's going to raise them to deal with So maybe he's even internalized some of the Egyptian values. And it's like, does he really want all of this? Canaan family stuff around Ephraim and Manasseh? Is he sorry on some level? Does he, you know, does he want to protect them from what's happened to him? Or has he completely bought in to the Egyptian system and is a little, frankly, embarrassed by those backwoods Canaanite Yahweh worshiping folk, hillbillies? Lynn. Or all of the above. Or all of the, well, it's Torah, of course it's all of the above. But I also can't help but think Jacob isn't coming down just with his breath, with the, his sons. There are hundreds and hundreds of people, and as you said, in their hummers, and he's very wealthy, and this is a time like it is now, that you have maybe a thousand people coming with their massive wealth, and you don't want to get Pharaoh nervous that this could be an invasion. And so, you know, tell him you're a shepherd and that you'll live over here. You're not, you're not, you don't have thoughts about invading. Exactly. Um, and to take it one step further, most of the conflicts in the ancient Near East and in the world today are often started. If you heard David Siegel, he said Syria is all about a drought. That's what started what the business in Syria. I mean, not that there's not, not that it's not a tinderbox all the time. You throw a good match in there, and, but, um, but like in the ancient Near East, we know there was war constantly, right? To have an extended period of peace was what you wished for your children and grandchildren because it was unlikely. And it's resource scarcity that drives populations out of where they are, if they're coming out of where they are, they have to go somewhere. And if they're going to go somewhere that has resources, guess what? Other people live there, right? If there's resources there, it's populated. So you have to beat up the people who live there and take their land and displace them. Now, where do they go? They go someplace themselves and beat somebody else up. So this is how a lot of the population shifts and wars happen still today, but especially in this time. So if there's a famine in Canaan, it's not like the Egyptians haven't heard the news. So there's a famine in Canaan, and all of a sudden this huge group pushes down into Egypt. It's happened before. They've seen it before. But they have to be a little nervous. Right? Uh, and it's not like Egypt isn't dealing with the scarcity either. Joseph has prepared for it, but they're also dealing with a famine. And so there has to be serious, serious anxiety around seeing, like you said, a, you know, a couple of at least hundred people coming down looking with their, with their motorhomes, right? They're not coming with an overnight bag. They're coming with their motorhomes. Like they're, they're going to park their trailers and they're going to be here for a while. That can look like, at the very least, they're starting to come down. Uh oh, right? They're going to, they're going to start consuming our resources. That's, that's the least. At worst, this is the beginning of an invasion from the north. But Egypt was the, the empire of the time. So Canaanites aren't going to make them. It's like, oh, are we going to be invaded by Canada? Ooh, we better be careful. Here come those Canadians, right? So it's not, it's not huge, but it's gotta be of some concern, at least that, at least at the level of 
they're taking our jobs, right? Which we hear a lot about on TV and the radio these days, don't we? They're taking our jobs and we're supporting them and they don't belong here. Meaning not a military invasion, but just feeling invaded in terms of they're taking what's ours. Mm -hmm. Right. Xenophobia, right, which is certainly at work here. Sarah? This reminds me of things I heard when the uh, Persian Jews started to come to Temple Sinai. They're not like us. They're very different. And, you know, there was a lot of difficulty absorbing that, which did happen eventually. But in the beginning, it was not like they were even Jewish, but they were, you know. And, and I still hear it. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, someone made a comment just the other day. You know, we were talking about something that happened to the family. and said, let me guess, they're Persian. Um, so, um, I, mean, I mean, there are some real differences that are hard to navigate and negotiate sometimes. And then there's xenophobia, which is a very real thing, um, not only um, in, the, in this part of the ancient world, but in general, right? We... Um, physical anthropologists believe that it's one of the ways that we survive and that we have survived as a species is if you were suspicious about somebody who's not from your clan coming into your settlement, you were much more careful about keeping out germs and viruses and bacteria and things that you did not have an immunity to. That xenophobia is actually originally helpful and important in our survival. Um, now, of course, it's become something else. I, I have a kind of an unrelated question. There is no such thing. Okay. Um, Joseph, as you may know from the story, had a lot of trouble with his siblings. And it says in the Torah portion that his two sons were the only two sons in the Bible who didn't try to, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of trouble with sibling rivalry. Well, it doesn't tell us that. We have concluded that. Okay, we've concluded that. Were they circumcised? Were they raised Jewish? So there is no Jewish. Right? Were they, Number were they one. Raised, um, in the tradition of our fathers or of Joseph and... We don't know. We don't know. We suspect they were Egyptian. Um, but we don't, we don't know. Um, and what does, what does being raised in the tradition of their ancestors mean exactly at this point in our history? That would be an interesting hour. <laughs> right? Because Already, the way we've studied Sarah and Hagar and Leah and Rachel this year, we've we've realized that they were probably still very connected to the matriarchal Mesopotamian religion, right? It's the men who were doing this Yahweh business, and so you know what what does it even mean to be raised in that household? Do you know if they were circumcised? His, if he circumcised his sons, Egyptians That's- circumcised. They did. They did. So it it's not meaningful in the way that we associate circumcision with being part of the covenant. Yes, Blanche. I want to share an up-to-date story. Please. About Joseph's family. Um, Joseph's family was the And if apropos our story, Blanche, you're talking about 
they were vandalized, victimized, oppressed, and were afraid to complain because it wasn't their country. They feel right that if they make trouble, it could get worse. Right? Um, that's a that's what we're about to see, aren't we? That's that's exactly what happens to Joseph's family after Joseph is gone. At the beginning of the next book that we're going to study together, God willing, um, that's what we see. They have become exactly that, a population that is vulnerable and oppressed and can't speak out on their own behalf. So I call the local council people. They didn't do anything. Right. They didn't do anything. So their assessment wasn't wrong. (laughs) <laughs> right? That if, <laughs> that if we speak out, we're not going to get help at the least. And at the worst, we it could increase the violence against us. All right. So, wow. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, I, <laughs> uh, okay. So let's push on so we can see what happens. Um, 47, yeah? Somebody read. Then Joseph came and reported to Pharaoh, saying, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that is theirs have come from the land of Canaan and are now in the region of Goshen. And selecting a few of his brothers, he presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? They answered Pharaoh, We, your servants, are shepherds, as were also our fathers. We have come, they told Pharaoh, to sojourn in this land, for there is no pasture for our servants' flocks, the famine being severe in the land of Canaan. Pray then, let your servants stay in the region of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, As regards your father and your brothers who have come to you, the land of Egypt is open before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them stay in the region of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. All right. So... Yosef says that me and I, that my family, my father and my brothers are coming down here for what? Lagur. What is Lagur? Huh? To live, reside. Yes. What does it suggest? We're not going any place. <laughs> They're not going any place soon. What else does it suggest about their status? Look at two of the letters. Gare. They're strangers. Exactly. They are there to reside. It is not their land. Lagul, their status, becomes resident aliens. They are now Gare. Where have we seen Gare? Hagar. Hagar. Hagar is our first narrative of the status of Ger. We're going to see it over and over and over again. But this is the place, our first reference to this whole business that the Jewish people in some way is founded on. You shall never oppress the Ger. Because you were a Ger in Mitzrayim. Don't you ever forget. It ain't them. It's you. We can't ever otherize in our tradition if they would just work harder. They're so lazy. Mooching off the state. They would just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You can't ever. You can have opinions, but you have to feed them. You can have all your rich Egyptian opinions, but you must feed and clothe and house the ger, whether you like it or not. Because it's not separate, different, or other than you. This is where it begins. This is where we first uh, see it in the narrative. This is the Passover Haggadah, right? That my ancestors went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Who grew up at the Maxwell House Haggadah? <laughs> went to sojourn there. Daniel? Can you try that bigger idea of Judah saying, I'm bound up with them. You know what I'm going to? Mm -hmm. So, 
I mean, there it's not unrelated, right? So one is at the personal level, Judah gets it that, you know, our stories are bound together. Um, or that's a reading of it, you know, anyway. Um, out of empathy, out of deep compassion and empathy. And this is at the national level, right? This is at a much bigger, not more important, just larger scale level. You are tied up with the rest of humanity who live among you as resident aliens. Don't ever think they're different or other than you. Fundamentally. I mean, obviously their circumstances are different, right? And Torah is big on acknowledging that we're different, we're separate, we're other, we're different. Fine. You, you, you can't use difference or other as a way, a means, or a justification for oppressing anyone or allowing them to languish below a certain level of material sustenance. Did I see a hand over here? Robert? hesitate because I'm taking this a bit off that topic, but isn't there, is, is, to me, there, there, there's a second meaning to this, this air uh, word. Please. Which is, the repeated warnings, I think it started with Isaac, don't go back to Egypt. <laughs> Whatever, you know, that was going looking for the um, spouse, I think. And, but there's several times, no way you guys are going back to Egypt. So, they had to, for food, but we're in, the point is we're not staying. We're we're this is a temporary deal, and that's to me was implied by saying we're going to be strangers in your land. We aren't here to emigrate and, and get a green card. Correct. So that's the intention. They wind up there for how long? Just four hundred years. <laughs> four hundred years. God for God. He just he has things to do. Right. So you know. He, Yes, the intention definitely was we don't want to be here. We don't want to be in Egypt. We don't want to go down to Egypt, right? It's always going down. We were told not to. We were told not to. Don't do do it. Because bad things happen when you go down to Egypt, right? And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. The strange thing is today, the southern part of Egypt is called Upper Egypt. And northern Egypt is called Lower Egypt. All right, now you're messing with my head. All right, we're going to – I just want to push on to to, – because I think we don't often get to this place uh, to talk about what happens next. So I'm going to read. Joseph uh, brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, verse 7, and Jacob greeted Paro. Paro asked Yaakov, how many are the years of your life? And Yaakov answers Paro, the years of my sojourn on earth are 130. Few and hard have been the years of my life nor do they come up to the lifespan of my fathers during their sojourns. Then Yaakov bade Paro farewell and left Paro's presence. A poignant description by Yaakov of his own life as being short and painful. Um, Yaakov's story is is not an easy story. Um, He's hugely wealthy. He's successful. He's reunited with his son. I always have looked as an adult at Yaakov's story going... Right? Not, not particularly happy. And, and he self identifies that way. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers, giving them holdings in the choicest part of the land of Egypt in the region of Ramses, as Paro had commanded. Yosef sustained his father and his brothers and all his father's household with bread down to the little ones. Now there was no bread in all the world, for the famine was very severe both in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, languished because of the famine. Yosef gathered in all the money that was to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan as payment for the rations that were being procured. And Yosef brought the money into Paro's palace. And when the money gave out in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Yosef and said, give us bread lest we die before your very eyes for the money is gone. And Yosef said, Bring your livestock, and I will sell to you against your livestock if the money's gone. So they brought their livestock to Yosef, and Yosef gave them bread in exchange for the horses, for the stocks of sheep and cattle and the asses. Thus he provided them with bread that year in exchange for all their livestock. And when that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said, And we cannot hide from my Lord that with all the money and animal stocks consigned to my Lord, nothing is left at my Lord's disposal save our persons and our farmland. 
Let us not perish before your eyes, both we and our land. Take us and our land in exchange for bread, and we with our land will be serfs to Paro. Provide the seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become a waste. So Yosef gained possession of all the farmland of Egypt for Paro. Every Egyptian having sold his field because the famine was too much for them. Thus the land passed over to Paro. And he removed the population town by town from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not take over for the priests had an allotment from Paro and they lived off the allotment which Paro had made to them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Yosef said to the people, whereas I have this day acquired you and your land for Paro, here is seed for you to sow the land. And when harvest comes, you shall give one fifth to Paro and four fifths shall be yours as seed for the fields and as food for you and those in your households and as nourishment for your children. And they said, you have saved our lives. We are grateful to my Lord and we shall be serfs to Paro. And Yosef made it into a, a land law in Egypt, which is still valid, that a fifth should be Paro's. Only the land of the priest did not become Paro's. Thus, Israel settled in the country of Egypt. In the region of Goshen, they acquired holdings in it and were fertile and increased greatly. What has Yosef done? He set the seed for slavery. He has set up the system whereby his descendant, I mean his relatives become enslaved. So often we leave the story of Yosef at this place where he saves Egypt and his family from the famine and is risen and reunited. Yay! We don't often go here. This is dark. Nice. Do you think he did it by accident? I mean, he was trying to serve Pharaoh. He was trying to be so selfless. Just give it all to Pharaoh? Uh, you're Pharaoh's number two. You ain't going to be Pharaoh. Closest you're going to get is Pharaoh's number two. Okay, so he he is definitely propping up the government. He's propping up the king, 100%. That is his power. That becomes what Paro owes him. He owes it all to Yosef. And how do we know that that is an important factor? Because how does the next book that we start begin? There arose a king in Egypt who did not know Yosef. Yosef becomes the puppet master. He becomes the real ruler of Egypt in this sense, right? What he says goes. Of course, it's Paro who owns it all, but he's He's in control of all of the crown's resources. He has made Egypt a serfdom. People no longer owned land. Do we hear how important that is? They don't own land anymore. Paro now owns all the land, all the farmland. They become itinerant farmers. They don't own the land and they have to give a fifth of the produce to the crown. Sharecroppers. That's exactly what Yosef turns the entire land of Egypt into. So his loyalty to Pharaoh as a father was greater than his connection to his own at best, I think what we can say is he was blinded, you know, by loyalty to this new father, not thinking through maybe what it would do to his father because they're not supposed to be there very long anyway. At worst, he doesn't care, right? He, he's completely loyal to, to the new father figure and, and, and that father figure's worldview and interests. Maybe I got the timing wrong, but what he ended up doing—we've seen before. We see again, and this is how this is how the problem of poverty was dealt with back then. I mean, it, it's right—you you, you sell everything you have, and, and all you got left is to become a, a serf to somebody else, 
to survive. So this is just on an incredibly grand scale. But what was that the only option? Yosef has put in place a program for seven years to save, right, grain, to save and store food, to feed the people. He's got the food to feed the people. Did he need to have them give all their money, then give all their animals, then give themselves and the land in exchange for that? I would argue no. no. Now, you know me. I'm going to read it in context. I'm To be fair to the text, Torah is describing the world that is. So you're absolutely right, Robert, that this this was the way poverty was dealt with. What, what I find shocking every time I read this is the calculated extent to which Yosef reduced the entire population to poverty. They weren't poor when it started. And Egypt has the grain, right, to feed and, and to take it to our situation. We currently have, by the way, we all know, enough food to feed everybody in the world who's hungry today. And we don't. And we don't. It's not in our interest. But wasn't this Joseph's job? Ah, now, David, you come to a very interesting question. What is Joseph's role? What is his role? So, not to do that really shows Pharaoh that he can't be trusted. So, absolutely, Joseph is 100% living into the best job he can do for Paro. What does Torah usually have to say about what's our role, right? So, I think it's a real, it's a real question about who this Joseph is, who he's become, that he's become fully Paro's right-hand guy doing it. I was just doing my job. Well, he, he has only orders. I was just following orders. I was doing my job. Hmm? True businessman. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that that's right. That, that has a connotation far different. Joseph's an intellect. This is a very smart guy. He shrewdly got his family safe. He also preserved his own status. And now he's in a position where he says, look, I'm number two here. And I think... It's good for everybody. I, I don't attribute bad motives to Joseph. I think he's just doing what's expected of him. So I think we can all agree Joseph is super smart, and smart can be super dangerous. And he reduces the entire population of Egypt to poverty and dependence on the crown. Is he doing his job? Absolutely, according to the palace. Do we in any way admire what Joseph sees as success? That is a question I put to you as we as we come to the conclusion of the story. Lynn! But, 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 but. Where did all this grain come from to begin with? Didn't Joseph in his the dream and the interpretation and there's going to be seven yeah. years Plenty. I'm so excited. And seven, and seven years of famine. And so everybody, let's bring our extra grain together so we'll have it when there's a famine. So they've already contributed. Contributed. Correct. Rainy day. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And then he charges them for the grain they brought. Yes. 100%. He's smart. He's a good businessman. Price gouging. Well, he bought cheap and sold dear. I mean, I mean, I assume they can't pay for it. He just, he was wise. He saw the way the market was going to go. That, that's it. And sold dear. Absolutely. It's the American way. Ruben? Strange thing to me is that the Hebrews thought that was a good deal. The, the Hebrew what? Thought it was a good deal. They said, ah. And I don't understand why, but they said. <laughs> uh, uh, so um, I'm not convinced. Yeah, I'm not convinced that this is a statement of actual what they actually experience, as much as it is um, they are. They, they have slowly had everything taken away and have been disempowered. And when a population is disempowered, they tend, right, 
we, we tend to give a lot of things over to the authority, including gratitude for what they then show us or give us. Or You can also look at it that they were looking at it, they were saved, they were hungry, and, and uh, he solved the problem for them. We'll, yeah. Tomorrow we'll worry about tomorrow. Who said yeah. that? So David's okay with this. They're hungry. He's giving them grain. David's okay with the fact that they brought their grain once. And now they're having to pay dearly, even though the plan was to feed all of Egypt with that stored grain. Okay. Is it is it possible that when he set the Pharaoh's tax at 20%, that he overshot the mark in the sense that uh, he didn't realize possibly, how difficult it would be for somebody to get out from under and ultimately buy their land back. In other, um, words, in other words, if it had been, say, a 10% tax instead of a 20% tax, maybe in five years of good crops, six years of good crops, the farmer will have made enough money on the side to go back and say, okay, I'd like my land back. What do you want for it? Um, it's maybe- absolutely possible that he overshot and did not mean to enslave the population. I find it as smart as he is, as powerful as he is, I find it hard to believe. They brought the grain planning for a famine. The famine didn't just happen. Joseph knew it was coming. He planned for it. He stored their extra grain and then turns around and enslaves the population in exchange for the grain. D- did he think they would get out from under that? I, I don't see any well, look, place says, says, indicating that he wanted them to. He made this the law of the land. How could they? That, that's right. Like that now it all belongs to Paro. Good years. So we take it for granted that this was the plan that Paro would want. That the ideal would be to have a, a country full of slaves. Heck to the yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so I'm going to give you something, even though it's a few years old, because I think the, the idea is still absolutely uh, critical. It's from American Jewish World Service, and it talks about food aid and the ways that we um, do and don't provide food aid to other countries, because one of, one, one of the leading ways that we do that is in a way that makes them dependent on the United States, right? We give them our grain rather than helping them grow native grains, teaching them the technology, spending money on teaching people how to grow their own you know, food or sustain themselves in their particular part of the world, we want to support our corn farmers and ship a bunch of corn overseas. So I just, I want to give it to you just to, just to read to think about why wow, these ideas are not, even though they're 2,000 years old, it's still happening. Why do you think Joseph did because I think he was doing his job, and I think he's become completely identified with Egypt. He's become completely identified with the monarchy. Um, he's doing it to the Egyptian population. We, presumably, David says he's he's taking care. Of, it says he's taking care of his family. So you don't think he's at all aware of how this would turn? Like he's not seeing the future. Uh uh. I don't think so. I think I think he is completely dedicated to the palace and and does what he thinks right is is the best thing for the palace and he does. He does do the best thing. Like David said, he, he he's smart, he's a good businessman. He turns Pharaoh into an absolute ruler. That's exactly right. Why is David? Line, it seems like line 25 doesn't need to be there. You know, when it says that they said you have given us life. You can go, arguably, you can go right from 24 to 26. This is what it is, and, and now it's the law of the land. That seems like it's a pretty powerful land. That people don't seem to be complaining. Right, so that's what we were just talking about, that once people are truly disempowered, they often don't. They don't speak for themselves and are grateful for any crumb, right? And then, that's. And then in 27, it seems to have to hit the very last second of one of those, oh, and there's maybe a happy ending because now Jacob's back to being Israel again, uh, you know, fruitful and multiplied greatly. So that sounds like, because then it says in the commentary that, that that's sort of the beginning of a, they become a nation. It seems like the, 
they're going in the last minute. This is not a terrible thing by saying that Israel has become fruitful and multiplied greatly. I, I don't think that that's a statement about whether or not it's a terrible. I, I think you're right. I think I think I'm being harder on Joseph than Torah is. I agree. And I'm sorry David left because I want to admit that. Um, I'm being much harder on Yosef than the tradition is. Um, he's often lifted up as a hero. You know, that, just like David said, he's doing his job and he did it brilliantly. Um, but I, I am not ready to let go of the dark underside that I think even Torah sees. Um, that they are fruitful and multiply doesn't mean they're doing well. It means there's more manpower for Pharaoh. Yeah. There, was there any tradition of giving without some getting something in return? Was there anything, any tradition of just charity, pure charity? Uh, like, could you give them food if they didn't give you anything? Hundred percent. There was because we we are told over and over in Torah law that. You will feed the the widow and the orphan. It doesn't say you'll take their payment. But that's before this. I mean, that's after this. Right, but but the people who wrote that, the people who wrote this are coming from a value system that says there's a, a place below which you're not supposed to, as a community, let people fall whether or not they can pay. So the concept was there. Yeah. What do you think means this sentence... The priest's land alone did not become Pharaoh's. Because Pharaoh's... Pharaoh's priests? Right. It's not the... the right. Pharaoh's priests. Pharaoh's not stupid. He may be powerful. He's not stupid. So he is not going to take anything away from the priesthood because who are the folks who can bring down a Pharaoh? The priests. The rabbis. The rabbis. <laughs> exactly. Um, what, who, you know, who does the king defer to? Only the church. Because it is the, who puts the crown on the king's head in the coronation ceremony? The highest representative of the church. And that is, so it has always been, so it will always be, right? That there is this tension of powers between the cult and the monarchy. And we see that Absolutely, Pharaoh is not going to touch the property or goods or rights or privileges of the cult. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.